All right, welcome to Wildlife Cape and Cocktails, episode 20. I'm your host, Yanni Torcola. We've got a very interesting show for you guys tonight. We're talking Melblums, spider orchids, and thinned wasps. Uh, this is a fantastic, fantastic show for you, for you guys. Um, and in honor of that, we are uh, drinking white orchids. Um, it's uh, two measures of vodka, one of simple syrup, one of lemon juice, uh, one of cranberry juice, uh, shaken and over ice. And I've also got some really nice white chocolate mud cake here. Um, our guest tonight is Dr. Nushka Reiter. After completing her Bachelor of Science with honours at the University of Melbourne, she moved on to finish a PhD in 2009 at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, working with threatened flora. Uh, she's currently a research scientist with the Royal Botanical Gardens in Victoria, also part of the Threatened Species Recovery Hub of the National Environmental Science Program. You can check out the gardens on Facebook at Botanic Gardens Victoria, or on Twitter at RBG underscore Victoria. Uh, Dr. Nushka, thank you so, so much for joining us. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Yanni, for having me on the show. Excellent, excellent. And uh, did you manage to find uh, 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 some dessert and something to drink? Yeah, currently I've got a little bit of white chocolate here um, and a coffee rather than cocktails, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's totally suitable. We often go the... Uh, the coffee or tea route ourselves. Um, uh, awesome. Well, look, we're very happy to have you on. We're very excited to talk orchids and uh, wasps and uh, conservation. But um, I guess first, um, I just want to know, how um, did you actually get interested in in orchids? Were you always into plants and gardening? And uh, is it the like beauty of their flowers or kind of the cool evolution of their pollination systems that got you um, into orchids initially? Yeah, okay. I, I had a rather interesting childhood um, and my parents... Really liked the great outdoors. So um, fantastic. Yeah, fond fond childhood memories of um, being uh, taken out of school on various school driving trips throughout Australia. Um, and um, my mum and dad really loved orchids, so I think I inherited a little bit of that from them. Right, right, and obviously, like when travelling, some of uh, some of those uh, desert roads out through central Queensland. And Central Australia, we, we do see some really amazing uh, orchids even just growing on the side of the road some of the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, some of our roadsides are quite spectacular. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic, fantastic flowers. Um, I've always been very interested in, um, in orchids and, and, and all kinds of flowers that have those very complex pollination systems myself. But uh, yeah, anyway, very cool. Um, so you got to travel a lot um, when you were younger. You've seen quite a large amount of Australia then? Uh, I'd like to see a whole lot more. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Yeah, um, some of it might have to wait for retirement, but um, certainly, you know, working with threatened orchids um, largely across southeastern Australia at the moment, and um, so I'm really blessed in my job to to see some of our fantastic country. Yeah, excellent. And look, it is interesting that um, Australian orchids are uh, in a little bit of trouble here. So let's um, let's get into that a little bit. So uh, Orchidaceae, it's one of the largest families of flowering plants uh, on the planet at around 28,000 species. So that's more than mammals, reptiles and birds combined. Uh, it's actually a very ancient group appearing uh, around 110 million years ago towards the end of the early Cretaceous period. Uh, in fact, around 10% of Australia's plants are uh, orchids. So there's a huge amount of diversity there being so old. And there's about 100, uh, sorry, 1,300 species here in Australia, 80% of which are endemic to the country. 
Now they're often very beautiful with their flowers and very popular in home gardens. So there's a lot of native orchid societies uh, around the world and in Australia as well. Nonetheless, around 17% of Australian uh, orchids, uh, Australian threatened plants are orchids. Is that correct? Yeah. So just to just to put things a little bit uh, more in perspective with your stats there. So we actually have something like um, 297,000 species of plants in Australia. 200. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And orchids only represent, you know, not even 6% of that. Um, but okay. on the threatened flora list, you are right. Um, uh, disproportionate to their size, there's, there is about 17% of all threatened flora in Australia are orchids. So they're massively overrepresented over on um, uh, the threatened species list, which is a shame. Yeah, right. And, and of course, aside from all their... Um you know, aesthetic and intrinsic natural value. Um, why are they so important for uh, wildlife? Uh, is, is it the complex, like, cross-pollination systems that you get sort of species-dependent pollinators? Like, there's certain nectar-producing uh, orchids and things like that? Uh, look, um, I don't think their intrinsic value should be put aside. I mean, you know, everyone, you know, since Darwin has been fascinated by orchids and, you know, David Attenborough came out here to Australia specifically, you know, to film them. Um, they're some of our most fantastic and fascinating plants that, you know, we have to look at. You've got um, crazy things like orchids that look like ducks that are pollinated by wasps. <laughs> um, you wow. know, uh, I think um, that sort of intrinsic value and and the fact that they're threatened, I'd, I'd really, it'd be such a shame to have sort of the next generation that wasn't able to see that. Um, I know myself, when you sort of look through, you know, books on the dodo or, or whatever, you just, you feel a sense of sadness when you're, when you're reading about something that would otherwise be around if it wasn't for us. Yeah. Absolutely, and I, I by no means mean to diminish their natural, you know, intrinsic value or anything. I, I, they are you know, phenomenal. And it, and it is a, an absolute tragedy whenever we do lose a species of, uh, of any sort, particularly uh, something as beautiful as some of these plants. Yeah. Um, and uh, look, you know, um, for biodiversity, I mean, you know, with, you know, a couple of hundred um, species of orchid just in Australia alone um, that are threatened, uh, it would be sort of quite a loss to our biodiversity to lose those over the next 50 to 100 years. Because um, yeah, most most of the species that we're dealing with, um, you know, there's only a couple that are naturally rarely restricted, and the rest, um, the reasons why they're restricted is is because of us, um, land clearance, introduced weeds, rabbits, um, you know, ancient overcollection, um, you yeah. know, lo loss of pollinators. Um, there's there's a you know. A, a large variety of threats that are uh, facing the orchids, and a lot of them are man-made. So you know, obviously, whenever that's the case, it is kind of on us to try to you know mitigate some of the damage that we're we're doing to this planet. I suppose. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to. I'd like to think that we would step up to the plate on that front. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, uh, you know, just as a personal interest point, I I've always been interested in, in uh, plants with sort of very direct pollination systems that are very species-specific, that kind of what they kind of call uh, magic bullet pollination. 
So as uh, you know, you've got some plants which kind of just broadcast their pollen out into the air and give everybody hay fever, but <laughs> you've got other ones that use certain specific methods to attract some kind of animal vector, which then you know flies off and pollinates the exact same plant. So they have to be kind of really specific in the uh, in the animals they attract, and then over time those relationships become more specific as the plant evolves to. Uh, more better uh, attract well to to sorry more better <laughs> to better attract that animal which will uh, cause more successful cross pollinations for it and it ends up with things like figs and hammer orchids which like slam their little insects pollination visitors onto a little pollen thing and then send it off to go get slammed into another flower and it's it's all just really bizarre and awesome I think yeah, and I mean, orchids have taken that to sort of new and interesting heights. Um, you know, you have, you know, orchids that, you know, provide food rewards, sure, but you have some that, you know, are deceptive and they trick the pollinators into thinking that there's, you know, food rewards, but there aren't any there. And then you've got others that, um, you know, uh, pretend they're a brood site for a little gnat. Um, you know, and the females come and try and, you know, lay their eggs and in, in while doing so, you know, pollinate the orchid. And you've got other crazy ones, um, you know, like um, in Caledonia hostata, which is one of the ones that we've recently been working with, where um, they're sexually deceptive. So they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty crazy. So sexually deceptive orchids um, release uh, pheromones, um, that um, are essentially imitating um, the smell um, of uh, the pollinator's mate. And in the case of, yeah, really, really quite specific. And in the case of Caledonia hostata, there's a, a little um, finid wasp, um, Listrica finis hostatus, which um, smells this pheromone, which it thinks it's its mate, and it, you know, comes along and and mates with the orchid, which is a little bit unfortunate, um, and in doing so removes the, um, the pollinia and then it gets duped again and that's how pollination happens in this orchid. Um, so you can imagine with such specific uh, relationships, um, if something happens to the pollinator, um, there's not a lot of future for these plants. Yeah, right. Well, and that is just one of those really fantastic examples of like the, uh, what they release some kind of strange semiochemicals, which the males uh, specifically think are the female. And it, you couldn't get more, a more accurate magic bullet for pollination from going from one plant to another. Like it's, it's just a fantastic uh, sort of association and like uh, evolutionary pathway that those two things have uh, convergently taken. Yeah, and it's been repeated over and over again in Australian orchids. Um, everything from our cute little um, green hoods, our terrestylis, to in Caledonia, and the hammer orchids, the drakia that you mentioned before, and um, our duck orchids. Um, the, it, it's just it's repeated again and again um, throughout the Australian orchids. Well, can, can you tell me a bit more about the duck orchid? That's, uh, that sounds very strange and fascinating to me. <laughs> <laughs> So I affectionately called the duck orchids. So they refer to a, a group of orchids that, um, you know, uh, look essentially like ducks. Um, we have one here in Victoria um, called the flying duck orchid, um, which is <laughs> endemic to the Grampians. Um, but it also occurs in Western Australia. 
Um, and then we have, you know, common common um, duck orchids, the large duck orchid, Kaliana major, which occurs throughout Australia. And then there's a bunch of really um, sort of limited distribution ones across in Western Australia. But they're, they're quite interesting. And again, it's, um, you know, an orchid that to us looks like a duck. So you've kind of got the whole beak and, and sort of body going on just like a duck floating on water. Um, but it, it sort of it, it hinges on a little trigger. So when the wasp comes in and essentially mates with the duck's head, um, the, it, it gets catapulted in and, and gets the, the, gets the um, pollinia deposited on it. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's, so it's a it's, little it's, duck-faced catapulting insect trap for pollination yeah, purposes. It's, it's, they're very cute. Um, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, well, look, uh, we were also you did also mention the uh, Caledonia hastata, Melbourne's uh, spider orchid. Um, we did want to talk about that a little bit, actually. I, um, so I hear they were once common in Victoria and South Australia, but extinct in South Australia by 2015 with only around, what, 400 plants left in the wild? Yeah. Um, they've uh, undergone a sort of a significant range retraction, uh, I would say, you know, largely over the last 100 years. And um, a lot of that has, has been habitat clearance um, and, then, um, and then habitat sort of degradation after that as well. So, okay. um, yeah, they're, they're quite uh, limited now. Um, they're only sort of found uh, now in um, five wild sites um, and three of those sites um, don't have more than two plants. So, um, wow, two yeah. orchids per site. It, it's, it's, in a, it's in a bad way. Um, and then one of the wild sites we actually um, discovered during the course of the study that the, um, the pollinator appeared to be no longer present. We, we are hoping it comes back, but um, uh, through significant habitat degradation that happened across that site, um, the pollinator wasn't detected over a couple of years of survey. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's, um, that's kind of uh, tragic to see, that, uh, like to watch how dependent they are on that kind of local pollinator and and that could have also happened uh in in victoria i i understand except for some of the work that you were doing um along with the royal botanical gardens um as their uh, research scientists leading the uh, orchid conservation program uh down there is that correct yeah um we work uh on about sort of you know anywhere between about 20 or well, probably about 20 different species each year of of um sort of federally threatened orchids um across southeastern australia and um, uh, so working with the Melbourne spider orchid um, has been a bit of a, a long-term project for us, um, along with, you know, various partners. So there's a whole group of people involved in um, sort of conserving this orchid uh, for the long term. So we've, you know, we've been involved with um, community groups like the Australasian Native Orchid Society, um, the Australian Network for Plant Conservation, um, the local Department of Environment, Parks Victoria. Um, so, um, and you know, we um, received funding through um, Portland Aluminium as well as a community exercise, which was great. Um, yeah, and um, the Australian Orchid Foundation. So, there's a large group of people that um, are part of this, um, which is fantastic. And um, 
there were surveys done um, between 2008 and 2014 to look for uh, potential sites where we could reintroduce um, the orchids. So the, I guess the long-term aim being to have more populations back out there um, that are sustainable. But in order to do that, we had to find sites where the pollinator was present, you know, the vegetation was right, the land was protected, um, you know, sort of working our way through the different threats that the orchid faced. Um, and it, it turned out to be quite the long-term project. So we ended up having to survey something like 233 sites. Um, wow. Uh, in order to find five sites where the pollinator was present. Um, and then of those, only two match the vegetation that we're after. So... <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, wow. So, like, well, I guess my, my next question is, um, how do you survey for... for um the appropriate habitat. You're looking for thinnered wasps, I understand, which are the main pollinator, the thinnidae um, family, also known as the flower wasps. Um, so, yeah, so the um, genus that we're working with, so we're, uh, so we're working with thinnered wasps, and the genus that we're working with here is Lystrica thinnus, so Lystrica thinnus hastata. Lystrica thinnus. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. And, you know, Lystrica thinnus hastata, as in, uh, you know, so closely related to Caledonia hastata that it has the same species name? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So the wasp was described, obviously, relating to the orchid that it pollinates. Um, yeah, we, phenomenal. And um, are, are they also um, beetle larvae, parasitoids, the way a lot of the thinidae are? Or? Yeah, they are. Um, and, and very little is known about what happens underground. So with these guys, um, the female is flightless. Um, and uh, at a certain time of year... Um, she comes out from underground and sort of, you know, crawls up a, a bit of vegetation and waves her bottom around in the wind um, and in doing so emits pheromones. And um, right. the guy comes As along. As we all do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the guy comes along, um, the male wasp, and um, picks her up and takes her um, mates with her and then takes her off for a bit of feed of nectar and then often dumps her mid-flight um, back on the ground. <laughs> and um, oh, that's awful. off she goes um, back under, underground um, and uh, she sort of lays her eggs from what we believe on um, the larvae of scarab beetles. And, um, yeah. Oh, wow. So, and, and, <laughs> and on it goes. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that underground, what happens underground is, is largely not studied. Okay, okay. So the males uh, are then uh, lured by uh, Caledonia hastata, the uh, spider orchid uh, pheromones that it releases out of the flower, um, which basically mimic that of the female wasp, and uh, the pollen is picked up as they try to mate with it and transfer it to the next flower that they try to mate with. Yeah, um, and so in order to, um, we call it baiting, and it's just, it's, um, what we do um, at the Botanic Gardens is we um, actually grow these orchids up from seed um, with their little mycorrhizal fungi that they like to grow with. Um, and we, we grow them up into flowering size and um, we then use those as bait plants um, for, the, for the surveys and later on for reintroduction as well. Um, but essentially by taking these plants around when they're flowering, um, because the attraction 
to the pheromone is so strong, you know, you will you will get a response um, if the wasp is present in the environment within a few minutes. Um, okay. So is that how the uh, 2014 surveys were carried out? Uh, so the surveys were carried out be- between 2008 and 2014, so across that time span, so across around okay. years. six years. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so that's how they were carried out. Um, and um, the trick is, is as well is that the, the wasp only flies at higher temperatures um, and during a particular, you had to, you know, obviously survey during a particular time of year when the plants were flowering as well. So the window yeah, to yeah. survey is quite small, particularly um, in some parts of Victoria um, where it's quite cold and if you're down on the coast, you might, you know, only get a handful of days a year where it's warm enough to be baiting for these wasps. Right, so you've got like a very short window where the, um, where the flowers and the insects, I guess, are mating in the wild, so you've got to take advantage of it. Yeah, you do. Um, all right. Well, and um, so how did how, how did the survey actually work? You're taking an orchid out with you. Are, you. are you just waiting for insects to land on it and then capturing them? Yeah, capturing them um, and then identifying them. Um, and um, you know, um, when you're doing these kind of studies, you're you're looking to make sure that the insect, you know, does its job, so it removes pollinia, um, so that we can confirm it was a pollinator. Um, so we, we had to confirm that, you know, the insect was a pollinator and then, and then have a look at, you know, how, how far it was you know, distributed in the landscape. And as it turned out, um, you know, it was, it was incredibly patchy, um, which, which really limited the places that we could um, then reintroduce the plants back into the wild. Yeah, right. So, look, only two remaining areas that uh, would have the thinned wasps that you were working with. What was the species name again? It's um, Lystrica thinnus hastata. Lystrica thinnus and hastata, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so into those areas, working with uh, volunteers from, is it the Australasian Native Orchid Society of Victoria? You guys translocated yeah. over around 450 plants to those areas, is that correct? Yeah, we did. Um, we put... We put them back into two sites, um, which is great. And um, we've now seen natural pollination and seed set at both of those sites, which we're absolutely thrilled about. <laughs> so it's, it's, right, that's so awesome. Yeah, it, it's, it's good news. Um, it's early days. Um, orchids are long-lived and, um, you know, we want to sort of monitor these populations through and make sure that they're self-sustaining. Um, and we're still supplementing plants back into these sites. So we'll be working with them for a while longer. Yeah, keeping an eye on them and, uh, yeah, just checking on things from time to time as well, I imagine. Yeah. Um, so we go in and we, we monitor them every year and have a look at what they're up to, how many are flowering, um, who was pollinated, um, you know, and who's setting seed, um, keeping a friendly eye on, on how the populations are going. Yeah, fantastic. And um, I wanted to ask as well, where does the uh, soil fungi come into the picture? You mentioned as well that they do like those uh, mycorrhizal fungal uh, associations, which they're effectively, as I understand, a a parasite to a mycorrhizal fungal host underground. Well, um, technically a symbiont, but it's a little bit of a one-way relationship. Um, (laughs) It's a little bit orchid skewered. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit bit orchid skewered. Um, So... 
all of um, uh, terrestrial orchids worldwide are actually reliant upon mycorrhizal associations in order to germinate in the wild, um, which does which does put them a little bit aside from other plants. Um, so if the seed does land in an area where there isn't that fungi, um, then it simply will not germinate. Um, so uh, in order to grow these, we have to go out and uh, isolate the mycorrhizal fungi um, and bring it back to the lab and grow it up. Um, and then we sort of in introduce the seed and fungi together um, in the lab and, and germinate them. What, do you do you have a, like running cultures of the fungi, or do you, every season do you just go out to the area where the the orchids are and collect uh, spores from there or mycorrhizae from there and grow them up? Yeah, we we do we do keep cultures, um, and but we also do go collecting in in winter. Um, so inside the cells in a particular part of the orchid is is where the fungi occur. Um, so we isolate the fungi uh, from those cells. Um, and um, the idea is, is obviously to get a, a little bit of a diversity of the fungi in there as well. Um, yeah, right. Sometimes they have, have quite specific relationships, um, but, you know, other species have quite broad fungal relationships. So sometimes you might be dealing with one species of fungi and, and other times many. Um, and most of these fungi um, that you're working with, or a large proportion, are actually not, are not described. Um, so it makes life right. <laughs> <laughs> working with lots of undescribed fungi as well. That's very cool. Um, so look, uh, as you mentioned, some of them need just you know one fungi. Other others can use all you know. Some of them I, I hear even require um, multiple fungi. So I guess that you know all the uh, with the codependent pollinators and then the mycorrhizal fungi. There's probably um, fairly few suitable landscapes to start with for um, for some of these threatened orchids. Is that correct? Um, well, we're able to introduce the mycorrhizal fungi with the orchids because um, we germinate the orchids with the fungi, um, and that then stays with, with the orchid, um, which is which is quite good. Right, as the root root system and the microbiome grows in under the soil, it will expand. Yeah, and um, and we're still very early days with. Um, the fungal distribution studies with many of these species, but all the indications so far is at least the fungal partners appear quite widespread um, across oh, that's Australia, good news. which is which is really good. Um, and so that's sort of you know less difficult, but still um, you know you don't get these kind of fungi often you know in agricultural landscapes or highly disturbed landscapes or ones that you know have had excess fertiliser put on them. So, um, right. you, you, you still... So I, I guess some of the main issues are that sort of land clearing and modification for grazing, agriculture, and uh, just development in general overall, I suppose. Yeah, a lot of which is historic. Um, and, I mean, you know, some still goes on, on, on today as well. Um, and then it's about sort of reducing the threat so we have a lot of uh, introduced weeds and, and animals, as you're aware, in Australia. Um, and um, so there's a lot of um, overgrazing at some sites um, by rabbits and such. And, um, you know, introduced weeds like felt grass, for example, in Western Victoria, um, you know, changes the soil. And that, that can, they sort of have a lot of effect. Um, on our natural landscapes that haven't been cleared or used for agriculture. So 
Um, there's a yeah, there's a whole bunch of threats that you need to essentially get under control to make, I guess, translocations work. Okay. And and are you guys actually uh, put, implementing a lot of control measures yourselves, or are you more looking for areas where you can uh, transplant to as as, as many uh, as possible that you're growing at the at the botanical gardens? So um, we uh, sort of have a whole bunch of selection criteria based around you know permanently protected land, either public or privately, um, and then awesome. really good um, vegetation matches. And then, you know, important things like, you know, the pollinator being present and, you know, the size of the land being large enough to eventually sort of sustain a healthy population. Those type of type of issues, very, you know, if possible, um, you know, sort of low weed and, um, and animal issues on those sites. Um, but, you know, you can't always get that. And then it's, it's about working with, um, the land managers and the land owners, whether they be Park Victoria or Trust for Nature or um, private land ho- owners, um, about improving those sites before they go back in. Yeah, right. Okay, no worries. And uh, look, to not to play devil's advocate too much, but uh, I guess when we were talking about grazing and, uh, you know, there's some pretty large kangaroo populations in some parts of this country as well, which aren't contained by agricultural fencing and things like this. Um, What's the impact of uh, native vegetation grazing on on orchids like? Is it, uh, do they uh, cause quite a lot significant impact? Um, yeah, in some sites they do. Um, so some translocation sites, um, we uh, just in order to get the populations established, we actually fence the site um, and we put in um, you know double gates at either end, uh, which then allows. Uh, those sites to be opened up to grazing by native animals, you know, over summer and sort of early autumn when the plants are naturally dormant, um, which keeps the vegetation down, but um, means that the negative impact um, from that kind of grazing while these plants are getting established um, is minimised. Okay. Okay. And um, I, I guess, you know, we, we've spoken about how aesthetically pleasing these flowers are. There is a lot of people who uh, around the world will illegally collect a lot of plants from some kind of sites, uh, some, kind of, some kinds of protected sites as well. Um, is there much of that going on in Australia, the collection of uh, ornamental uh, orchids from, from protected sites? Um, historically, yes. Um, that was considered, a, a considered quite a large threat. Um, but I think um, there's been a lot of uh, public awareness raising, particularly by the Australasian Native Orchid Society and field match societies and um, uh, sort of across Australia where people are aware now that, you know, that's not the right thing to do. Um, and, and so I think there's been a real cultural shift there and that um, we're not really seeing that so much over the last um, couple of decades. But certainly... Um, you know, and that's been helped by legislation, um, you know, uh, sort of all the federally um, protected orchids, um, you know, they're not allowed to be picked in the wild. And, um, you know, in Victoria, for example, um, all orchids are protected. Um, oh, fantastic. Which is, which, which is, which is a great thing. Um, and um, I think there's more sort of enthusiasm from uh, the community to see them um, in the wild, uh, then, um, you know, to dig them up and, and have them anywhere else. Um, 
but certainly um, there's there was again sort of you know on the legislation front as well there was um, the international trade in endangered species um, orchids the whole family was put on there so it's actually illegal without permits to to trade um, orchids internationally um, but there is there is still quite a, a lot of it at going and on in the world and there are sort of uh, large areas in the tropics um, throughout Asia and South America and such as well where um, large-scale collection um, still occurs um, and is one of the major threats to those species in the wild. Yeah, well, so I guess the um, the advice would be to, uh, as we mentioned, there's so many of these native orchid societies that you could you could go to and learn how to, I suppose, grow a lot of your own ones of the, maybe not all of the threatened species, <laughs> but, you know, still some fantastically beautiful flowers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's threatened orchids, I mean, sorry, there's um, native orchid societies all over Australia um, and um, there's, there's probably a, a group uh, close to anyone that's listening um, and um, many of them have... Uh, you know, conservation groups that you can become involved in. Yeah, awesome, awesome. And uh, speaking of, you're, you're uh, I, I understand you're currently working to introduce uh, around, uh, well, reintroduce around th- uh, 20 threatened uh, orchid species down there in Victoria. Is that, uh, is that what you guys are up to at the moment? <laughs> yeah, um, so we're working with different partner organisations um, across uh, sort of New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia, um, and so we have quite a few of those species that um, we've propagated now um, in the lab with their fungi um, and we're growing them on in the nursery and um, actively partaking in a lot of the um, natural history and ecology studies um, in the wild. Because many of these species, we don't know what the pollinator is or their mycorrhizal associations are and some of them, you know, the methods to propagate them aren't established. So, um, you know, we, we're doing some of that based natural history um, and and working with um, different groups um, in order to eventually get these species back into the wild. Yeah, well, but obviously, you know, very hard work and a lot of research to do with so many threatened orchid species that uh, quite, quite a monumental effort that you guys are undertaking down there. Uh, yeah, look, um, it, it's uh, really helped out um, by enthusiastic volunteers and project partners um, and uh, it's been a, a work of love by a lot of people um, and I think without the community group involvement it, it simply wouldn't happen yeah, um, yeah so awesome. they've been fantastic yeah excellent well look we've um, we're pretty much at the end of our show here which is fantastic because uh, you're starting to break up <laughs> but thank <laughs> okay. you so much thank you so much this has been really really awesome uh, uh, I hope we can uh, talk to you about orchids at some point hope to, hopefully face to face sitting down in the future if you're ever up here in Brisbane we'd love to have you on the show um, that's uh, Dr Nushka Ryder everybody thank you um, and I'll catch you again cheers, cheers. <laughs> n- n- no worries now, um, by the way before you go is there any um, is there any uh, anything else you'd like to plug I know uh, you guys can check out um, if uh, you're at home you can check out uh, the Threatened uh, Species Recovery Hub on Facebook at NESP Threatened Species 
um, or on Twitter at TSR Hub. And uh, again, you can check out uh, the Botanical Gardens of Victoria, Victoria on Facebook at Botanic Gardens Victoria uh, or on Twitter at RBG underscore Victoria. Did I miss anything? Yeah, so if you go to the RBGV website um, and um, if you look under science, um, there'll be a little link to the Orchid Conservation Program and um, you can have a look there about um, some of the work that we get up to and some of the species that we're working with. Um, Wonderful. Check us out. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, yeah, uh, as always, check out the Threatened Species Recovery Hub. And guys, coming up on March 25th, it's the uh, RepEx Brisbane Reptile Expo at the Royal International Convention Centre at the Brisbane Showgrounds. Uh, 1,700 metres squared of reptiles and much more for you to come and check out. Uh, so that is also coming up. Uh, Nushka, thank you again so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. I can't wait to do it again. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers, no worries. Uh, guys, I've been Yanni Tokola. Plenty more wildlife taking cocktails coming up for you soon. Uh, cheers, we'll see you shortly. Bye.